this morning as we look at this passage, this is, uh, I'm excited because it's so practical and so relevant to our lives. And I, I think one of the greatest prayers for you, for me, for us as the body of Christ is that we would be self-feeders. Self-feeders. Now, it might contradict what I'm saying about needing other people, but I mean, I mean that you don't have to be spoon-fed all the time. We have a Jesus-calling culture. Okay, Jesus calling culture. You might like the book. That's great. The premise behind the book is this lady had great quiet times, and she believes that God spoke to her, and Jesus actually spoke to her and wrote these, gave her these things to write down. So she recorded them, put them in a little book that you can purchase for a nominal fee, and there's Jesus calling Bibles and Jesus calling this and Jesus calling that, and you even get a coffee mug that probably has Jesus calling on it, and that's fine. If you like that, that's fine. I'm not making total fun of you, a little bit of fun of you, but, um, but the point is we need somebody to have a quiet time so that they can tell us what Jesus said to them for us. You understand what I'm saying? That's what I mean. I don't mean to totally be negative there, um, but I could be, but I, I don't mean to be. But what I mean is we have a Jesus calling culture where we need other people to tell us what Jesus said to us instead of being a self-feeder. What did Jesus say to you? What has he spoken to you about? What has he said to you? I mean, I'm pretty sure that the revelation of Jesus is we already have that. In fact, let me go a step beyond that because this is funny with the whole debate about morality and different things. A lot of people are saying, well, Jesus never said anything about, um, you know, gender identity and, you know, who could marry who and whatever, which actually he did speak to marriage and he did speak to morality and immorality in a general term that included homosexuality and other perversions, including incest and other things. All that stuff is all included in Jesus' statement about um, immorality. But nonetheless, um, last time I checked, Jesus is God and he wrote the whole book. Okay, he wrote the whole book. He wrote Leviticus. He was there. He was clapping. He was excited. He spoke it. He was part of the deal and inspiring um, Moses to record, to write down under the inspiration of God, the very thoughts and, and, and feelings and impressions of God. Every jot, every tittle, it means every I that's dotted and every T that's crossed, inspired by God in the original documents. Jesus was part of that whole conversation. And so he wants to speak to us through his whole word, his Bible, and, and yet we are constantly being deceived. And the next, the rest of this passage, chapter 2, is going to get in that. In fact, chapter 3, he gets into it a little more, a little more clear, uh, clearly. In fact, let me, just, let me just give you a teaser, chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Timothy, because this you need to... This will help us understand how relevant what we're looking at today is. But he says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will become lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, hurtful gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than Lovers of God holding to, this is the shocker in the whole passage, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Those that profess and hold to what appears to be godliness. Do you realize there's a class of people, there's a group of people out there that permeate even local churches, maybe even pastor churches, maybe even on the television or the internet or whatever, teaching things, and they have a form of godliness, but yet they deny its power? And they're guilty of many of these things on this list. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 14, he says, remind them of these things. These things referring back to the last several verses, talking about Jesus Christ, resurrected, son of David, 
prophesied that he would come, comes a fulfillment of Scripture, has come according to my gospel, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship and imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. And for this reason, I endure all these things for the sake of the elect who are chosen, those who are chosen so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus and with eternal glory. This is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Remember these things. Remember these things. It means memorize them, chew on them, refer to them often, continue to come back to them as the touchstone. These are important things to remember. Remember these things. And I solemnly charge you in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Don't argue over trivial things, even using the Bible. Don't argue. Don't get sucked into debates and things that are just not helpful and just not beneficial to you. And so jumping right into the text, he immediately, he says, look, don't quarrel or argue over words. Don't get into word battles or word wrestling. Don't wrestle over words or don't argue over words. So do your best to present to yourself to God, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who is, has no need to be ashamed, but rightly handles the word of truth. That rightly handles means cut straight. We'll come back to that in a second. But avoid irreverent, irreverent, sorry, irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene, which is really gross. We'll come to that in a minute. Among them are Himenaeus uh, and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the passage. 14, he, he's challenging us. False teaching is destructive. First thought, false teaching is destructive. It's destructive. It's not just somebody else's point of view. It's not just, well, that's what they think, but that's, not, that's how they interpret the Bible. No, it, it really is destructive. It's demonic. It's dangerous. It's hurtful. It don't wrangle over, don't wrestle over words. I'm trying to think of examples. It's interesting he doesn't give us an example because I think this transcends cultures, right? Every generation, there's new things people are arguing about and discussing about the Bible that is just not helpful. In fact, I would argue it is satanic. You say, well, whoa, that's a little extreme to say it's satanic. Well, think about the first conversation in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve, God gives them a tree, well, lots of trees, fruit, anything you want. One tree, don't eat of this tree, because if you eat of this tree, then you will surely die. And then serpent comes along, a little conversation with the woman. The man stands aside, doesn't, he's there in the deal, uh, in this conversation, but he doesn't interject himself. He doesn't lead his family. He was passive and didn't take leadership in his home, which is what we were advocating for earlier. And because of that, the fall of man happens. And so here's the conversation. Did God really say you will surely die? You're not going to surely die. I mean, you're not going to die, die. You might kind of died, but not really a died. He's just, look, bottom line, God is holding back on you, and he's, <laughs> if you eat of this, you're going to get some knowledge that you do not have that only God has. And you're going to have the opportunity to know some things that only God knows. Isn't that appealing? 
right now, you can know some things that only God knows. You can, there's, a, there's the ability to have some new, fresh, exciting knowledge that no one else has. You can have it. Just eat of this. He's wrangling over words. Did God really say this? Did God really say that? And he begins to debate some things and call into question. He doesn't directly say, you know what? God's a liar, and everything that God says is wrong, and you shouldn't believe God. Satan's too smart for that. He just tweaks it a little bit. Did God really say you will die? I mean, what God is saying is, you know, if you eat of this, you're going to know some things that, that he hasn't let you know. He's holding back on you. Just eat of this. You'll, you'll gain some new knowledge. It'll be great. Okay, well, if you say so, and so they eat, right? What are the things in your life? What are the conversations you've had recently among people who profess to be Christians? I'm telling you, it is becoming abundantly clear. If you haven't noticed, okay, and this is going to be clear as the passage goes on, there are many, many people who name the name of Christ, who would check Christian on the box on a survey, but they are not followers of Christ. They don't know Jesus. Okay, in fact, you say, well, that's awful arrogant of you. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Jesus said that the enemy is going to come and he is going to sow tares among the wheat. And it is difficult to distinguish a tear from the wheat. They look the same. Some of you in this room may be tares. And some of you, hopefully the majority of us, are wheat. This is important stuff. We constantly be challenged ourselves. Don't just because you walked an aisle, you were dunked, you filled out a card, you prayed a prayer, you did whatever in the past. If there's no fruit in your life, if there's not um, repentance and faith, if there is not um, an, an ongoing, it might be slow, but growing a relationship with Jesus, I, I would challenge you to question the authenticity of your salvation. You can't lose it, but some of us think we have something that we never had. In fact, this very week, we had a whole bunch of kids that um, heard the gospel. Um, not pro- most of them, probably not for the first time. And in, in many vacation Bible schools, there would be a pressure on the third, fourth day to get the kids to make a decision to follow Christ. And so we'd, we would challenge them with, okay, kids, you can admit, believe, confess, admit your sinner, believe in Jesus, died for you, confess. And we could lead them all to do that. And the majority of them would have done that. Many of them would have done it a second time. Some of them would have done it for the first time. We could have pushed them. And it's not that we don't want them to be saved. We absolutely do. And we presented it to them. And then we ask them, have you made this decision? Are you not ready yet? Or do you want to know Christ? I want to talk to somebody about that. We have one child indicate that he wants to talk about that. And so we're going to connect with the parents and talk with the parents because we want to make sure that they understand what salvation is, that they need Jesus, that Jesus is God's provision for their sin, and understand that so that they can follow Christ. Rather than, as some churches have done, have a fire engine baptismal pool that you know come on kids do you want to follow jesus and go to heaven when you die or do you want to go to that bad place you know line up right here and they're all you know right and they're manipulated and they are make a false decision not really understanding these things there's people that profess christ that don't know christ there's no fruit in their life and they are arguing just like the devil did going did god really say blah 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 did God really say, and they might talk about marriage. Did God really say this or that? There are people that argue some of the dumbest things. Is God really, if he's all-powerful, could he make something so big that, that he couldn't lift it? He can do everything? Could, you know, and I would say, well, God's also all-wise. He's not dumb enough to do that. Okay, that's my response to that question. And there's other ones. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? I don't care. I really don't care if they have belly buttons or not. 
I don't see why that is relevant. If it was relevant, God would have told us whether they have belly buttons or not. God certainly could have given them belly buttons. Maybe didn't get I don't know. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so there's things we argue about that aren't relevant. Be discerning on that. because. And here's the way you, you understand these things. How do I know if it's something I need to avoid, some teaching or something? But here's, here's the reasons. It has no value. That's the first thing. It has no value. It, is prof, it has no profit. It's useless. It has no good. You think about, what is this thing I'm arguing about? Is it really essential and is it really necessary? Is it, does it really matter? Second thing is it ruins and tears down its hearers. It ruins and tears down. Uh, literally, it says, but it only, um, don't quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins. That word ruins is the word we get catastrophe from, catastrophe. It turns upside down. In fact, it's the opposite of building up. That which is edifying builds up. Uh, ruin means it's, a, it's catastrophic. It flips over. It flips something on, destroys it, breaks it down rather than building it up. And so is this conversation, is this stuff we're debating, does it really add value? Is it really doing good? Or is it tearing down those who listen? Those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God, a one approved, as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Here's a discerning question to ask. Does the teaching, does the teaching, my teaching, this teaching I'm listening to, whatever, does it build up and edify? Does it build up and edify? Or does it bring guilt without repentance? Not guilt that leads me to Jesus, but guilt that leads me to condemnation. Let me give you an example. Just talked about being better dads, better parents. Am I saying, you know what, if you guys, you men out there, if you were half Christians, you'd lead your family spiritual, uh, spiritually. And because you don't lead, you're dirty dogs. You're just a pathetic bunch of loser guys, and you need to lead your... That's condemnation, that's guilt, that's moralism. But the tone, hopefully, that you heard was, man, look, we're all doing this together. None of us have arrived. We all need Jesus' help to do this, okay? We're all incomplete. None of us have perfect examples. We need each other. We need repentance and faith to grow in this responsibility that God has given us. See, that, that tone leads us to the gospel, leads us to our need for Jesus to help us do something we can't do on our own. You understand that? So is this teaching, is it edifying? Does it, that doesn't mean is it convicting, because it might be convicting and hurtful because it convicts us, but does it bring condemnation or does it mean bring conviction that leads us to salvation, to repentance and faith? So does it bring guilt? Does it bring, is it moralistic? Is it distracting? Are we really arguing about something? I, I'll tell you, there was, uh, well, been a couple times I've had some um, long conversations with people about tithing. About tithing. Is tithing in the Bible? Should we really tithe? Should we really? And, and, I, and, I, and I come out of the conversation. I mean, I had a lunch with a guy for probably two and a half, I don't know, three hours. Well, the whole conversation wasn't about that. But, um, and, it, and I didn't bring up the point for the, for the record. I wasn't going like, you know, so how's your giving? Can you pass the salt? Yeah. Okay. You know, I, 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 this person brought it up and just said, I, I don't think it's biblical. I think you just, I don't think it matters. There's no percentage where you just give whatever God leads you to give. It's, it's a, it reveals so much of the heart. And I'm going to tell you, I'm, I've wasted so much time trying to help this brother understand and get to the heart of the issue, which was quite frankly pride and selfishness. And it was difficult. And at the end of time, I, I looked at this and I had to say, you know what? Let me be discerning about this. Was it edifying? No. 
Did it help anybody? No. Was it valuable? No. There's plenty of other people who would have loved, we, I could have spent three hours with, and they would have been so teachable and open to want to learn anything they can from the Word of God. And yet I'm debating this guy over percentages of giving? Seriously? Don't waste your time with that. Don't waste your time with that. Questions. So, uh, does this teaching build up or edify? Or does it foster pride? Does it foster covetousness? Does it cause people to puff up and to become prideful? Proverbs 15, 14. You can look through Proverbs. I just, this morning, I thought, well, I bet you there's a problem. Let me look for a Proverbs that speaks to this. And in three minutes, I found one. There's tons of them that speak to this. But here's one just really quickly. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of the fool feeds folly. The mouth of a fool is going to feed folly. And this is what we're talking about right here. False teachers feed folly with their mouth. They're not teachable. They're not open. They're not listening to what God, they're not submitting themselves to the word of God. They use the word of God to manipulate other people because of pride, to puff themselves up, to make themselves feel better about themselves. First Timothy chapter one talks about uh, using the law lawfully, but he now talks about those who, who teach confidently and arrogantly things on which they don't even understand themselves. They make confident assertions, is literally the quote. They make confident assertions about things which they don't even understand. In other words, just because they're, they're confident in what they're saying, don't believe them. Make sure what they're saying is biblical, and does it, does it build up? Does it edify, or does it tear down? Does it destroy? But then he says, do your best to present yourself as a workman, uh, to yourself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. Now, uh, you guys are going to have to listen a lot faster because we have a lot more to say. So let me show you these quick four images here. And um, what he's talking about is cutting straight. This is an example of not cutting straight, all right? This is an example of paving a road or marking a road not in a, an efficient, accurate, straight way. And this is really what false teaching does to you. I mean, you, you, you're trying to get from point A to point B, and it's just really difficult to get there, right? It's not near as efficient as the Word of God. It's not true. It's not straight. And it's just, you end up on all these detours and going off to the right, to the left, or whatever. Could you imagine driving that street? How frustrating. You know, how many of us would cross the line? I would cross the line. I'm just telling you. I would. I would go on a straight path. All right. But, but let me go a step further. This. Paul was a tent maker. Paul was a tent maker. And so when Paul's talking about cutting straight, he's probably thinking of canvas, you could think of, of laying stone. You could think of uh, different. You could talk about, it's used to speak of plowing fields straight. It's, it's used of all kinds of different things. If you're, gonna, if you're a farmer and you're going to plant corn, you want to have straight lines or you're going to have a very inefficiently planted and fertilized in water. You're going to have a hard time really nourishing your um, crop in an efficient way if it's not straight, right? And so in the same way, there's a gentleman that lives... Um, locally, Gerald Shepard, and he makes these unbelievable guitars, unbelievable guitars. Had the opportunity to go over, in fact, last week, two weeks ago, um, Dave Fields and I, David, obviously, you know, big guitarist, and uh, thought it'd be fun for us to go tour his little deal in his basement and see what he does. These are like uh, unbelievable craftsmanship, but I want you to see this because this is what he's talking about. So this is the body of a guitar with, I don't, David could tell you all the woods there. I don't even know all the woods, but I know that many of them are exotic woods that are incredibly expensive pieces of wood that have been cured, that have been, and he has precisely cut them to just, and sanded them, and shaped, and just done unbelievable work to get to this point. It's unbelievable 
the precision that it's gotten to this point. And then the next slide shows you some of the detail work. You saw on that past one some of the pearl that's around the sound hole and on the sides. And then this one, you see this little red and um, black, almost looks like plastic little um, whatever pieces. It's actually wood that has been dyed. It's been dyed, and he's wrapping that around the edge of the guitar of the guitar in a beautiful way and he showed us on one of these guitars on the back side underneath where the neck would be in a place that nobody else would notice this little piece there's an error there <clears throat> if you were to take your little inductive bible study card there and look at it and you took two of those and put them together you're going to have about um three to six one hundredths of an inch of space there okay that's how all those pieces of paper would be together. Okay, so that's like 0.003 for a normal piece of paper, though that's cardstock, so we'll just say that that's probably, two of those together is probably about 0.008, one-hundredths of an inch, uh, or um, one-thousand, one sorry, of an inch. Um, I never was great in math, but I passed. But uh, 0.00, that's why I'm a preacher. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to do math, so what do I preach? That'd be, so 0.008, and, and that is the degree of error when he got to the end of space where it was supposed to line up because something happened way back here in just a couple little spots that just when he got to the end it didn't measure up just quite precisely here's the finished product of one not that one but another guitar it's incredible the craftsmanship unbelievable the detail work in this i I just can't even begin to tell you how all that and explain it it's amazing tedious meticulous meticulous work Okay, to the thousands of an inch detail work, even less than that at, at, at places where he's trying to make sure everything lines up absolutely precisely because any error could affect the tone, could affect the sound, could affect the visual appeal, could affect any element of this stuff. I mean, it's incredible the detail that goes into this. And this is what Paul is saying. When you open the word of God, make sure that you are really, really careful, meticulous, diligent, very careful to make sure that you understand what you're reading and that you interpret it accurately. How offended would Paul be today if he sat in your average Bible study where you have a circle of people combining their ignorance to debate what each of them thinks about a passage of Scripture? If you've been in one of those Bible studies, everybody sits around in a circle and then you read it and then they're like, well, what do you think about this? I don't know. I think this. What do you think about it? I don't know. I think that. Whatever. There's no effort to rightly divide the Word of God. You understand what I'm saying here? And yet we're sticking it on coffee cups and we're putting on little quotes, and we're done, which I'm all about getting the Word of God out there. I think that's great. But, but there's no effort on our parts to diligently study and understand and know the truth of the Word of God. God has been willing to give you a copy of his very words, his thoughts for you. And yet we're just like, yeah, I don't have time to read today. Ah, it's too complicated. Ah, I can't really understand it. Well, I don't really like my translation. Well, we don't even know if it's reliable. Well, we don't even know. And we, we just so flippantly disregard the word of God. And yet that's what he's telling us to do, man. Be real precise. Be real meticulous. But, and you're going, well, I just can't do that. I don't have those tools. I never went to seminary. I don't know I'm glad you asked because I have an opportunity for you. Somewhere close to you is a green or blue card, 
And some of you have maybe skimmed this already, and you've gone, wow, you've already gone to sleep reading it. You're just like, wow, um, and you just shut down, kind of like I do when I see, hear math, right? <clears throat> um, and I want to go over this with you just briefly, because I think this is, if nothing else comes, this is not the most inspirational and encouraging, exciting, emotional moment in the message here. But if you will grasp this and begin to think this way, and if, if I can inspire in you a hunger for the Word of God, when I teach the Word of God on a Sunday, my desire is not to elevate myself, and the win for me is not that you come out and go, he is so smart and wise and insightful about the Word of God. Wow, I wish I could study the Bible like David Anglin. He is just amazing. How would, my desire is that you would hear the Word of God taught, and you go, that knucklehead up there, if he can understand that, surely I can understand that, and, and, and be inspired to go, man, I want to get in the Word more. I hope that your appetite every Sunday is wet to just, I want more of the Word of God. I want to feast upon the Word of God, and I hope this will be a simple little itty-bitty tool to help you understand the Word of God a little more. The first thing to do, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but let me just go really quickly through these points. Okay, first thing, prayer. Start with prayer. Humble. Come to the Lord. God, would you speak to me from your word? I'm not, I don't want to have an intellectual study and learn some things to gain, to get a bigger brain. I would like to hear from you. I want the, I'm begging you, the eternal creator of the universe who has um, transcended, who transcends time and transcends our brains, but has digressed to be willing to put your thoughts in this book for me. Love letter. I'm asking you to speak to me. And so ask him to speak to you. Simple. You don't have to be profound and to be long. Just, God, would you speak to me this morning? Often, if you're going to be diligent to Bible study, some of you guys are tremendously diligent. It's not because you're godlier than the rest of us that, that aren't as diligent. The, the reason is because you're just a disciplined person. You can check a box, and you'll check a box to the glory of God all day long. But you're not any closer to God than anybody else. Because it's pride and self-discipline and self-righteousness that motivates your Bible study. And I'm glad you're in the Word, but start with prayer. So that we don't do this because we ought to, but we do this because we need to. We want to. We desire to. So my prayer often is, God, I don't want to do this because it's the right thing. I want to do this because I want to hear from you. And I am distracted. My brain's going 150,000 different directions right now. And I need you to focus me in on your word and to speak to me. And I'm asking you to preparation. It's important. Simple prayer. Just being honest for God. He knows what's going on in your head. Anyways, start with prayer. Uh, then observation. Three questions. Three big questions you're asking ultimately. What did it mean? Flip the card over. On the bold header there, what does it mean? What did it mean, past tense? What does it mean now? And lastly, so what? What do I do with it, right? That's your three big questions, okay? If that's all you can handle, great. Just take that and run with it. That's great. What did it mean? What does it mean? What will it mean? Now, let me tell you why it's relevant. The Bible cannot mean something today that it didn't mean 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, okay? It, for us to understand what it means for us today, we have to go back 2,000 years, 3,000 years to the original hearers and understand how they heard this and what was the impressions of this. In other words, when you read the book of Revelation, they clearly, clearly did not, when they read about these locusts coming and fire and brimstone, whatever, they weren't, they weren't seeing Apache helicopters and nuclear bombs, okay? 
That wasn't going. It might be what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. But that's not what they were hearing. So get past the need to try to figure out how that would look militarily now. That's fine. But what's the point of the passage? What's the point of the text of Scripture? The point of the book of Revelation is to tell you to trust God. Trust God. Suffering Mike, is going to come, and it's going to get really tough, and it's going to get far worse than you can comprehend. And you need to stay faithful and trust the Lamb, the Lion who's the Lamb. Don't sell out to the beast. Don't sell out to the Antichrist. Don't be deceived. Hang in there. That's the point of the book. And if you come away with your theory on what kind of military devices are going to be used to bring about this thing, you've missed the point because it can't mean something today that it didn't mean to them when it was originally written, to the original hearers. So the first question is, what did it mean? Now, how do you get there? Okay, again, I'm going to go real quick. Big picture to small picture. Context first. What's the context? It's the context of the book. Is this Old Testament? Is it New Testament? Is it a prophecy? Or is it one of the epistles uh, in the New Testament? New Testament writings. Matthew, I mean, um, Ephesians, Philippians, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, whatever. Those are the writings of the apostles. Or is it the gospels? Is it there? And there's some nuances to each one of those that you can understand. Again, we talk about it another day. Um, there's a great book, How to Study the Bible, or How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And that will help you tremendously in addition to this. But How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Bottom line is context within the book. In other words, don't just pull and extract a verse and not read the paragraph it's in. Okay, does that make sense? Because if you do that, you'll end up in trouble. That's the point. So look at the context in the Bible, context in the section, the paragraph, and then the verse. And then here's some thoughts. You don't have to ask every one of these questions. But if you would do this a couple times and start to get this kind of thinking in your head, it will help you get more out of the Word of God as you study it. So things like, is there something emphasized in this paragraph? Is there something repeated? Something related? Something alike? Something unalike? Contrasting? Like light and darkness in 1 John. That would be something interesting to look at. Then, and then get a pad of paper and write down your observations as you're learning these things. You're seeing things. Write them down so you don't forget them. And then compare your findings to the context of the surrounding paragraphs. And then when you get to the verse, what words stand out? And then this is really complicated. You ready? Who, what, when, where? Who, what, when, where? You guys have heard that before. Who, what, when? Just ask those simple questions. Who are they talking to? What are they talking about? Um, when, 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 when did this happen? What was going on? What part of Jesus' ministry? Or what part of the Old Testament? Or what, and then where? Where is this happening? Those are just simple questions to ask. Interpretation, the second, third chunk of this. And basically, in that four points, gives you, that's the point where you might say, I might look at Warren Wearsby's commentary, or John MacArthur has a great commentary in the whole Bible that you can, and Warren Wearsby does too. You can buy one volume, and it has some things that help you. You don't go there first, but after you've meditated, chewed on it, thought about it, you might go there and say, I wonder what they say about it to help. If, particularly if you're really struggling with a passage, getting anything out of it, and seeing why this is practical. Sometimes those commentaries can help. If you want more information, come see me about that. I'd love to tell you more about that. And the last thing I want to end on on this card is application, the so what. This is probably one of the most important things. After you've read and thought about the passage a little bit, what does it mean? So what? If you don't ask this question, then you're not going to get anything out of it. And here's some of the questions you can ask. You don't have to do all of these. This is three groups that will help you think through how to use how to get something out of it. And so some questions to ask. Is there an example to follow? 
Nine questions to ask. Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise that I can claim? Is there a prayer that I need to repeat or something I need to memorize or an error I need to be aware of or mark? And then the last thing I would be wrong if I didn't mention this is gospel-centered living. And actually, this original card, I've had this for years, didn't have this on there. And we wrote this this week just thinking through it, and I thought it kind of can lend itself towards moralism. You read these things, you learn these things, and then you come up with, well, here's the things I ought to do. We don't want to do that. How does this drive us to Jesus? So application, gospel-centered living. Is there a sinful action that God's revealed in my life, a wrong belief about God in my life that I need to repent of? So the first thing is, what do I need to repent of? Is there something I need to repent of? The second thing is, what is the truth? What is the truth in this passage or other places near or in Jesus' life that I need to believe in, that God tells me this is the way to live or act? Or, and how was that fulfilled in Christ? That's number two and three. And then lastly, prayerfully, rely by faith on Jesus' righteousness. He was the good one. You don't have to be good. He's already good. Rely on His righteousness and the Holy Spirit's power to help you live it. And when you do that, Jesus becomes bigger. You become smaller. Jesus gets glory. You are humbled and and grown, and you mature, and He is glorified. And that's how to study the Bible. Now, again, don't be intimidated by this, please. Don't go, wow, I can't do all that. You have to be like superhuman. Just take a couple principles from that and start to think a little more deeply about the Word of God. And I'm telling you, you will be nourished. You'll be nourished and you'll be thankful as you do it. I would say this week, you might take 2 Timothy. You might take 2 Timothy and apply these things to 2 Timothy. Get a pad of paper and write down some of your observations. And if you do this, I would love to hear some of the things God is teaching you through the week as you study this. So we want to, not only do we want to... um, Understand that false teaching is destructive. It's also corrupting. Avoid irrelevant babble, for it leads people into more and more ungodliness. And the talk will spread like gangrene among them, Hymenus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Get that picture of the road for you. They've gone off the road, right? Saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. So let me give you the thought here. Godless talk leads to greater ungodliness. Leads people to more and more ungodliness. Advancing, progressing ungodliness. False teaching spreads and influences and corrupts other people. It destroys tissue. Gangrene, you have a wound, and that wound gets infected by some bacteria, and that bacteria begins to corrupt the tissue that's surrounding it. And so the, think of the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Some of you guys are, are getting lightheaded right now, I can see. Um, the body of Christ, somebody in the body of Christ is wounded. They're struggling and they're hurting. There's some sin enters into their life, right? There's some stuff happens. And, and we say, well, that's their deal, not our deal. And so we kind of look aside and we, or they're starting to teach some goofy things and we don't lovingly talk to them about it and help them understand the truth and bring it back to the Word of God. And so that, that disease begins to corrupt the person next to him, and then the next person, the next person. And so it begins to corrupt the healthy tissue in the body of Christ, and it, it just continues to spread if it's left unchecked. It progresses and continues to corrupt. And so we have to deal with it in a loving, God-honoring way, which is what the next passage we'll look at next week deals with. But it also can destroy the faith of some. We have got to get past the idea that every belief or view is equally valid. Okay, please, please get that thought. You've, we've got to get this past this concept in our culture as believers. I don't care what the culture thinks and what the culture thinks is appropriate or right about truth. It doesn't really matter what they think because they're not coming from biblical worldview. 
But from our understanding, which, by the way, everybody, atheists, secular humanists, steals from the Word of God all the time. They pick parts of a biblical worldview that they want to live by, and then they deny the rest of it that they don't want to live by. And that's another conversation for another day. But we've got to get past the thought where we want to say, well, all views are equally valid. They're not equally valid, which is why we should have the freedom to, in our culture, be able to talk through and debate and understand. And, under, and we need to, as Christians, be able to explain more accurately the Word of God to people to help them. False teaching can destroy the faith of some, and so it's destructive. Ideas have consequences, and they will destroy lives and souls forever. It's a big deal. We need to be people of the truth. What they were doing is they were saying the resurrection had already happened. Ah, you guys missed it. Sorry, the resurrection. I know you're hoping one day to be reunited, reunited with the loved ones that have gone before you and be face-to-face with Jesus and to get a new, you know, there'd be a new heaven, new earth, and all this. That. Yeah, but it already happened. We kind of missed the train. And so all that is is what is now. And so we need to live life to the fullest. We need to... to Get out of this world all of the delight and the joy and all of your, the gratification you can possibly get. So just do whatever makes you happy and make whatever feels good. That's what you need to do. That was the false teaching that was corrupting them. Because there's no afterlife. There's no reward after this life. The suffering's not going to be for any good reason. So why suffer unnecessarily? Just eat and drink and be merry, party, because tomorrow you're going to die. You know, we don't live that way because this life, the momentary suffering that we're going through in this life is nothing compared to the glory in the afterlife. That's going to be incredible. It's worth it. It's worth it to suffer. It's worth it to lay it all on the line in this life. It's so short because eternity is so long. And so that was the false teaching that they were saying. And so the last thought here, God's foundation stands firm. Think about the foundation on a building and that it is engraved and says this building was established in 18 whatever or 17 whatever or 19 whatever and and it has engraved on it something explaining explaining what this building was originally built for and when it was built and so that's what he's referring to he's referring to a structure with a firm foundation that has something engraved on it when you look a little closer what's engraved on it is simply these two statements the lord knows those who are his let everyone who names the name of the lord depart from iniquity two thoughts Three thoughts, and we're done. The proof of being known. You want to look at the firm foundation? What's the, 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 the proof of our firm foundation is that we are known by our Creator. We're known by our Creator. If you were to look, you might write down Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16, verse 5. In the Old Testament, is a story of a rebellion at Korah. And there were certain people in the, among the people of God that rebelled against Moses and against God. And God says, I know the ones who are legitimate, and I know the ones who are illegitimate. I know the ones who are mine, and I know the ones who claim to be mine, but they are not mine. And I will reveal that. And he does in his judgment at Korah. And he he reveals in that moment the wheat and the tares. And that's what he's referring to. He's saying, hey, God knows those who are his and those who are not his. He knows. And your job is to make sure that you're known by him. Okay, that you're known by him. And, and the second part of that is there's a proof in being known. And the secondly, there's a proof in bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. There's perseverance in the saints. There should be a perseverance in the saints. We should be able to continue on. You might make mistakes. You might get off the road. You might struggle. You might have a problem. You might, you might 
get disillusioned or depressed or struggle or whatever, it's fine. But you should continue in the faith. There should be, it might be real slow, but there should be a progression in your relationship with Christ where you're growing. You're growing. And, and if there's not, then you need to start asking some tough questions. Is there any fruit in your life? The proof of being known, the proof of bearing fruit. First John chapter 3, verse 6 through 10 says, the one, I'm not going to read the, all of them, but First John 3, 6 through 10, write that down, please read that later. No one who abides in him continues in sin. No one who abides, what that means, if you're legitimately a believer, you're not going to continue in habitual sin for the rest of your life. You will, God's going to continue to reveal other areas of sin in your life that you have not dealt with. And as you repent of those things and you trust in Jesus, he will give you freedom. But if there's no freedom and you continue to just, you're struggling with the same stuff and there's no conviction over it, you know it's bad, but you live with it and it doesn't really matter. And God loves me despite this. That's, that's not the fruit of a believer. There should be conviction, sin. God disciplines those whom he loves, those who are his children. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. So the proof of bearing fruit. And then lastly, the proof of Bible study goes back to being a person who rightly divides the word. Let me give you this quote by a real smart guy, and then we're done. The Bible study is like no other book. The Bible, Holy Bible, is like no other book in the world. It is the only book which presents for itself, itself written as the written revelation of the one true God. There's no other book that claims to be the written revelation of the one true God. Intended for the salvation of man and demonstrates its divine authority by many infallible, unfailing proofs. Other religious documents, such as the Muslim Quran, may claim to be the very word of God, but they cannot, they have no self-authenticating proofs, as does the Bible. And what he's referring to is prophecies that have been fulfilled. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled which authenticates the document. The book is authenticated because it is predictive things that have been fulfilled and they're historical and they're biblical, they're clear, and it doesn't need any outside sources to prove it. Whereas the Quran has one guy who was a pedophile who says that God gave him a revelation and there is thousands and millions of people that are believing this and following this and killing people, even in our country, based upon this ideology that was given to him supposedly by God and he was a pedophile. He was a sick, perverted man who was a, killed lots of people, just like his, many of his followers. And that doesn't mean that there's not some very nice, loving people with the image of, well, all Muslims have the image of God and are created in his image, and we need to love them and share Christ with them and, and, and engage them. And there's many that are nice and kind. So I don't mean to get off, the, but I want you to understand, the foundation of that is a book, supposedly that came from God, that does not prove itself. But the Bible proves itself with tons of prophecies that have been fulfilled. Sorry, I digress. As the record of God's holy will for man, the Bible is of utmost importance to understand aright the true meaning of the revelations it contains. It will not do to construe the word. That's a side comment. All right, so here's the bottom line. Quote behind you, behind me. Suffice it to say that this evidence, the fulfillment of prophecies, the self-authenticating proofs of the Bible, the tons of different copies and manuscripts we have, This evidence is so clear and irrefutable that no thinker can honestly, no thinker can honestly say that he is intellectually respectable and honest. No thinker can say that he is honestly, that he is intellectually respectable if he rejects the divine inspiration of the Holy Bible. 
Anybody who rejects the inspiration of the Holy Bible is ignorant and is not objective. They are biased and they have not looked at the evidence. Anybody who objectively, intellectually approaches the Word of God honestly and looks at what's there, they will come away going, this is clearly the divine Word of God. Now, they might choose to not live it. They might choose to deny it. That's fine. That's their prerogative. But they cannot say that the Word of God is not authentic. Can't say that. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? The challenge for us is to be really wise and to be careful and to feast upon the Word of God. The challenge for us is to be self-feeders, to test what we hear and what we know, to become passionate about the Word of God, to ingest and to digest and to chew on and to meditate upon the Word of God in our homes, in our families, in our lives, to become students of the Word of God, so that we will not be deceived, and so we can understand how to accurately share with other people what the Bible teaches. And let me close with this simple thought. The inscription on the foundation is this. God knows those who are His, and those who are His should bear fruit. Should bear fruit. What's the point? The wind is not gaining knowledge. A lot of people who know a lot about the Bible and know a lot about God. And it really doesn't matter how we puff ourselves up with pride with all the information we have. The question is, are you known by Him? And is there fruit in your life? Does the Word of God make a difference in your life? The inspired Word of God rightly interpreted and rightly applied. Understanding the Word of God, rightly interpreting it and rightly applying it. Are you known by the Creator? Are you known by the Creator? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Has there been repentance and faith in your life? Have you repented of your sin, put your faith and trust in God so that you would be known by Him, be in His family, so that you can understand the Word of God? He'll give you His Spirit to help you understand the Word of God. And then, those of us that are believers, are you obeying and appropriating the truth that you already have? Or are you just puffing up with new knowledge? We, we, we need to be known by Him, and we need to apply and appropriate what He teaches us through His Word. This isn't a textbook for us to get prideful. This is manna. This is God's bread from heaven for us to feast upon, to be nourished, and to be encouraged. Father, pray in these moments, God, that You would indeed speak to our hearts. And God, that You would open us up. Father, that we would become feeders upon Your Word, that we would be committed to knowing you and being known by you and appropriating and applying your word. You've been gracious to not leave us without your guide and your direction. So Father, help us to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray, we worship. Amen.